This week, what we're going to look at is the effects of his sin in his own life, in David's own life. We'll talk a little bit about that, um, but we're going to look at the passage, just kind of walk through it. Got a couple questions for us to walk through, and then at the end of it, we're going to have a special time of prayer. Okay, so let me open us up in prayer, and we'll jump into it. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care about us. Thank you that you created us. Thank you that you desire to have a relationship with us. And Lord, I thank you for the life of David. Lord, there are so many things that David walked through and experienced that we can all relate to. And so, Lord, tonight, as we just talk about the effects of sin, God, I pray, Lord, you will just quieten our hearts down. Lord, that we won't pay attention to our phones or the rest of our week. But, Lord, we'll just be open to listening to you. And, Lord, as I prayed this morning, Lord, that you would just, Lord, that I would open up my heart, Lord, to, for you to work. And, Lord, to reveal anything to me, I pray that you'll reveal anything to these men as well. Anything in our lives that we need to repent of, we need to lay at your feet, and we need to move on from. And so, Lord, I just pray tonight your spirit will rest upon this place. And, Lord, you'll convict us of anything we need to be convicted of. Thank you for David. And although he made some horrible decisions in his life, I thank you for how you redeemed him and how you have used his story for so long to minister to so many people. So use it tonight, Lord, to minister our hearts. We love you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. All right, so 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 6. Now remember, the first five verses really cover David and Bathsheba. David is not out in the, in the field with, um, with his men. He's not out preparing for battle. He's not out leading. Leaders lead. He was not leading. He sent other men in his place to lead. Let me just say this. Wherever God has placed you and whatever leadership he has given you, whether that just be with your spouse, whether that just be with your children, whether that be at your work, never relinquish that and give that away to somebody else. You stand up and be a man and not send someone else to take over your responsibility. That's what David had done. He was not where he was supposed to be, and instead he was isolated. He was by himself. He saw a beautiful woman. He called for her. They slept together. He got her pregnant, and now, uh uh-oh. Now he's got to decide. Is he going to come clean? What is he going to do? We know what this story is. We know what direction it goes in. But even as I've read it throughout the past week, I'm like, man, this is just horrible. But it's just a picture of sin. I'm just telling you, it's just so messed up. And what happens is when we get involved in sin, it grabs hold of us and it keeps us there. And we oftentimes think it doesn't affect anybody else, but it does. Because when it affects you and I, it then begins to affect the people around us. So I just want us to see what David decides to do after Bathsheba was found that she was pregnant. Look at verse 6. It says, David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how about uh, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, "Go down to your house and wash your feet." So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah did not go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come home from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered, David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are all dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. 
How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife as surely as you live and by your life? I will not do this. Now, let's just stop just there for just a moment. Isn't it fascinating that Uriah does not say, and my master David. He doesn't even consider David who he reports to. Now, I know David wasn't his direct report. Uriah directly reported to Joab. But listen, it is the king who has told him to go home and enjoy himself. And yet, it's interesting that Uriah is staying faithful to the person right above him. He recognizes that Joab was doing the right thing. And he says, my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. Look at verse 12. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. You know exactly what David was wanting from him. David was wanting for Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that he could say, that's Uriah's child. And so that's what he's doing. He was, he was deceiving him. He was baiting him. He was lying, all of those things. Now, it's interesting that it all started out with the sin of lust. That's where it started. Then after the sin of lust, he actually went through and committed adultery. Now, Jesus said, if you look at a, upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. But not only did he commit adultery in his heart, he actually physically committed adultery with her. And so what happens is, it's like that snowball effect. One sin turns into two sins, turns into three sins, and you just keep going with it. And so now he's found himself in this deep, dark lie and deception of trying to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his, his wife. Look at verse 14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm not for sure if I can, if I can voice exactly what this has done in my heart this week as I've just read and prayed and studied. Isn't it interesting that Uriah did nothing wrong and David sent his death letter with him. He carried his own death letter. That's really sad. This man is going back and he thinks he is doing the work of the king. The king has eaten with me, he's drank with me, and now he's sending me back. I'm on a mission for the king. And I'm going to deliver an important letter to Joab on behalf of the king. And in reality, it was a death sentence for himself. That's what the devil does. And that's what sin does. And we end up carrying a death sentence for ourselves. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. As, as Adam took the bite of that fruit, sin entered the world. And it was a death sentence for him. He carried that with him. The Lord came and said, Adam, Adam, where are you? The Lord knew exactly where he was. Adam was hiding from the Lord. How many of you ever had to try to hide from the Lord. Isn't it interesting that more sin and the darker types of sin, like immorality and stuff, typically happen in the dark because people are trying to hide. This is where David has found himself, where he's trying to get Uriah to go. I've got three points tonight. All three points come from something I said a couple weeks ago, and they don't originate with me. Dr. Rogers said these three things. And so I want us to talk about these three things and discuss them a little bit. 
The first thing Dr. Rogers said about sin is when it comes to the effects of sin, sin will take you further than you want to go. When Dr. Rogers preached the first time I ever heard him use these three points in a sermon, the way that he said it was sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. How how much do you think David stopped and thought about the consequences of sleeping with this beautiful woman? Probably none. Because he's the king. He makes the decisions. He calls the shots. Everybody reports to him. He reports to no one. Now, we know he reported to the Lord. But in his mind, he's the top dog, and he gets to call the shots. And so he didn't have to think through what the consequences were going to be for this. And as I heard Dr. Rogers say, sin will take you further than you want it to go, I've always thought about the story of David and Bathsheba. Because it didn't stop with just a decision to be away from his men. It didn't just stop with a decision to not be leading when he was supposed to be leading. It didn't just stop with a thought, a lustful thought, after looking at a beautiful woman. It didn't just stop after he called for that woman and slept with her and got her pregnant. It didn't just stop there. It then went into lying. It went into deception. And ultimately, it went into him having somebody killed. You think about that transpiring. Now, uh, a few years ago, I, I, I don't know why, I don't know what this says about my subconscious, and, and I'm sorry if this scares you, but I got on this thing of listening to last interviews with serial killers, the ones that have been executed. It's a fascinating study, and I'm telling you, you've got to really be at a place with the Lord where you're walking with the Lord because it is a very dark study. Now, I'm not saying I was sitting there studying things. I was just listening to these interviews to see what common threads I could hear in these men. Okay, specifically men. And I came across an interview with a man named Ted Bundy. Now, for those of you that are younger in this room, you may not remember the name Ted Bundy because it may have been before your time. For those of you that are over the age of 35, you probably remember the name Ted Bundy. He went on a spree of killing people, and when he did, it was terrible. The things that he did were horrible. And he was in a penitentiary in Florida and had been decided on such and such day they were going to put him to death. And they kept asking him. Every news station in America tried to interview him. Every one of them, CNN, ABC, NBC, Dateline, all of them wanted to interview Ted Bundy. Why? Because they knew it was going to be the story of the century. And this is what he said. He said, I will let one person interview me, but it has to be uh, James, uh, James Dobson. That's who it has to be, James Dobson. James Dobson is the founder of Focus on the Family. James Dobson is a very godly man. James Dobson loves the Lord. James Dobson flies from where he lives in Colorado Springs. He flies all the way down to Florida, and he sits across, and he has about an hour and 15-minute interview with Ted Bundy. By the way, you can go listen to it all on YouTube. I don't really recommend it, so don't hear me saying that I recommend you go listen to this interview. But there's about a seven-minute clip in there that when I listened to it, I thought, wow. And this is what Ted Bundy said. And I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but this is what he said. He said, Dr. Dobson, he said, I've been in prison for a very long time. And he said, I have been with murderers. I have been with adulterers. I have been with some of the greatest thieves. He said, I've been in prison with all kinds of men who have done all kinds of horrible things. And he said, without a question, There is one common thread, one. He said it's not race, it's not generation, he said it's not uh, ethnicity, he said it has nothing to do with religion, and he stops right there, he said, because I grew up in a Christian home. 
He said, my mom and dad were believers. He said, we went to church every week. He said, that's how I grew up. He said, I knew what to do, and yet I did not do it. He said, but without a question, it didn't matter if they grew up in a Christian school, a public school, a homeschool. He said, without a question, the only common thread is that each and every one of them are deeply, deeply involved and addicted to pornography. Every one of them. He said, I have never met a man in prison that didn't have a major addiction to pornography. And I thought, you know, it's very interesting because this is the one sin that the devil has grabbed hold of so many men and convinced them that this cannot change you and that nobody has to know about it. And yet it's the only common thread amongst all those men. And this is what Ted Bundy said. He said, it started with me. I think he was a middle schooler, around the age of 11 or 12, and he said, I was at a family friend's, uh, at a family, like an like a uncle's home, and he said, I found a magazine. He said, that's where everything started for me. Everything started for me. And what I thought was so interesting about this interview is that Ted Bundy's literally sitting here saying, you want to know how I got to where I am today? It started with a lustful thought. That's heavy. And every one of us in this room would say, Uh uh-oh, because we've probably all been there at one point where we've had a lustful thought because we're men. We don't justify that. we got to call that sin, and we have to deal with it. And it may not be pornography for you, but the reality is when we begin to sin and we don't deal with that sin, it turns into something more and more and more. And what Dr. Rogers said in that sermon, he said, you never think about it but it will just take you further than you've ever wanted to go. And I was thinking about one of my kids who I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but this one, I'm going to have to call him a him, so I've narrowed it down to two for you, okay? So you can take your pick, okay? But my wife calls me about uh, six weeks ago, and she said, you are never going to b- believe what he did. And I said, well, I, I don't know. What did he do? And she homes- we homeschool our children, And she said, well, he has been cheating on some tests. And uh, what he's been doing is turning stuff into me. And uh, he's been going and finding the answers in the teacher's book that we had fairly secure, but in a place where he could get to it. And he's been doing that when I go grocery shopping. I said, well, how long has he been doing this? And she said, well, we're on the 50th lesson. And as far as I can tell, he started at about lesson four. I said, well, praise the Lord. So when I got home, I pulled him into my room, and we began a conversation. And this is what he said, and I found it very fascinating. I mean, just tears, just just weeping. And he said, every night I go to bed, and I know one day I'm going to get caught. And he said, I've been worried about this day for a long time. And he said, but I couldn't stop because it was too easy. That's what he said. And he said, Dad. I need you to help me. And so we began working through his tests and going back to lesson one and began working through and preparing because he wasn't even prepared to take some of those exams. And it it was really interesting. Yesterday, I got a text message from him, and this is what he said, Dad, guess what? Exclamation point, question mark. Exclamation point, question mark. I knew he was excited about something. And I said, what? He said, I got 100 on my math test, and I did it all by myself. And it was a process for him, and he had to learn a really difficult lesson. 
But when we've had conversations over the past month about this, this is what he said. He said, it's interesting how when I started, I was scared to death to do it, but it became easier and easier and easier and easier. And that's the beauty of how Satan works. And this is what he does with David. You take a look, you slept with her, and then you've got to do more and more and more and more and more. And so I want us to discuss this question just for five or six minutes around the table. How have you seen sin take people further than they wanted to go? Now, I said people because I, I realize when we begin to talk about sin, and especially with sexual sin and things like that, and you don't have to discuss just a sexual sin, it begins to become uncomfortable if you're having to talk about yourself. So maybe this is somebody you've seen walk through it. Maybe it's you. Maybe I don't know. But I just want you to discuss how you've actually seen this happen and how you've seen it lived out and how the devil's had victory in people's lives. Take a few minutes, discuss it, and we'll come back together. Did anybody have, um, did you hear some of the same stories around the table? Maybe a different name, a different, uh, a different way of getting into that sin? Did you hear some of the same things? It's interesting. It's interesting the way the devil gets his hooks into us. I heard uh, Junior Hill. Anybody ever heard Junior Hill preach? I love Junior Hill. I think Junior Hill is one of the funniest preachers I've ever heard. But also, every, th- every time Junior Hill preaches, and I've heard him preach so many times, like I looked at his outline one time before he preached, and I thought, that's the most simple sermon. I've e-. It was like, Jesus loves you, the devil hates you, and follow Jesus. And he just thought, well, all right, okay. And like 150 people got saved, and you're just like, well, praise the Lord. You know, I mean, just, just the anointing of God on him. But he, to- he told a story one time. He said, you know, I was in a hotel the other day, and I was studying, and the devil planted this thought in my mind. He said, Junior, you're fat. Now, Junior was a pretty good-sized fella. And Junior said, I didn't believe him, though, because the Lord told me he was a liar. He said, so I just said, Devil, if you stay right there, I'll sit on your head. He said, the devil is constantly throwing these lies and thoughts into our mind. He said, but what happens is so often is we believe them. I was just talking to one of the guys over here, and he said, you know, after Dr. Dobson finished that interview with Ted Bundy, he, they did a study on a church in the, on a prison in the South, and they were trying to discover what were three common, thre- what were common threads amongst those prisoners. They came up with three things. Did you find the article? I couldn't find it either. I couldn't find it either, but I've read it before, and we, we remember two of them. <clears throat> the first one was, the common thread was, that growing up, those men had all heard from somebody prominent in their life, you're no good and you'll never amount to anything. And what did they do? They believed it. They believed it. They grabbed hold of it and they believed it. And the third one, well, I couldn't remember, we couldn't remember the second one, but the third one was they all went to vacation Bible school when they were kids. Isn't that interesting? And what that shows us is the devil's going to come after us no matter where we are, no matter who we are. What happened with David was he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He made a horrible decision, and that sin cost him a great deal. It cost him a great deal personally, but it also affected a lot of people around him. So let's look at verse 17. It says, if I can click on it, sorry. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you've finished telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall at Thebes, who struck 
Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So, in other words, David had sent this letter to Joab, and he said, listen, I need you to put Uriah at the front of the battle so that he'll fall. So now they go into this battle, and they begin losing this battle, and so Joab is going to send a message back to King David and inform him of where they're at in this battle. But Joab also instructs the messenger, he says, listen, now if you see that David is getting angry, if the king begins to get angry, make sure you let him know Uriah is dead as well. Wow. In other words, David's sin had taken him so far down this rabbit hole that Joab realized David would be happy if Uriah was dead. He was one in 30. You're right. You're right. It says in verse 22, then, I keep clicking on the wrong thing. Sorry, guys. It says, then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. It's just like, David, just go out into the battle and have this conversation yourself. Why are you sending somebody? Don't send somebody to do your work. You go take care of it. But he says, David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this matter upset you. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. David is literally instructing him, don't worry about all the people that have died. Don't let that upset you. He says, because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. Then he gets to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Now listen to this, and I think this is one of the saddest parts of the whole thing. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. David, if you look and you just start adding up all these sins, started out with one. Started out with a thought that turned into physical action, that turned into him having to try to cover it up, that turned into deception, that turned into lying, that turned into murder, that turned into all of these things all because he did not take his thoughts captive. Dr. Rogers said this in his sermon, the second thing, he said, sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. I wonder how this story could have ended if David would have woken up the next morning after having a night with Bathsheba and gone into the temple and repented. What if he had sought out Nathan? What if he had gone to the prophet and wept and repented of his sin? What if conviction had fell on him and he would have? But we'll find out next week when we look at chapter 12, it is Nathan who has to approach David. And he has to do it in a unique way of telling him almost a parable of, what, of a story so that David wouldn't immediately get angry with him and cast him away. But David doesn't do that. And we notice that sin keeps you longer than you want to stay. Dr. Rogers said when you get into sin and you don't deal with it, it will grab hold and it almost builds roots and grows roots inside of you. See, the 
first chapter of Psalm talks about being like a tree planted beside still waters. And I'm just telling you right now that you will either plant yourself in the word of God and the things of God, or you will plant yourself in the things of the world. And the devil is doing everything he can to cultivate our minds in such a way that that's where we plant our thoughts instead of dealing with them. The Bible tells us to take those thoughts captive. And I find it interesting that there's no way David would have ever thought for a minute that if he slept with Bathsheba on that night, that it would have turned into something like it did. Yet it kept him longer than he wanted to stay. Years ago when I was a little boy, I was probably, I was probably about 10 years old. I think I was about 10, I was, I was 9 or 10. My mom and my best friend's mom both worked at the Christian school in, uh, North, uh, in northwest Arkansas. And it was Benton County Christian School, and the church that we attended had this school. So we went to Emmanuel Baptist Church, Benton County Christian School, and both of our moms were secretaries in the school. My mom worked with the lower half of the school. His mom worked with the upper half of the school. Chris and I were best friends. We both had sisters named Ashley. They were both best friends. Our moms were best friends. Our, our dads were best friends. I mean, our families were just very close. And so what we would do in the summer is our moms would have to work even when we were out of school. And so they would get a babysitter on Monday to be at our house with all four kids. And then on Tuesday, they would hire a babysitter, and we'd go to their house. And so we'd go back and forth Monday through Friday for those eight weeks in the summer. And we loved it. And we spent so much time together. And Chris and I both did everything together. I mean, we were always together. We were in the same class in school. We were in the same class in church. We played basketball together. We played baseball together. We sang in the choir together. I mean, he was somebody that I was always with. So on this particular summer day, we were at his family's house. And what happened was is we had been playing Mario Karts. Now, I don't know if you ever played video games. Some of you say we didn't have video games when I was younger, and I'm sorry about that. Okay? I didn't get to play video games much at my house, but when I got to go over to his house, we got to play video games. So we played video games for a while, and I said, hey, let's go play outside. And he said, okay, let's go ask Miss Angie, the babysitter. She was in a room in the house we were not supposed to really go in because it was the sewing room at his mom's house. Miss Nancy was a seamstress, and she sewed wedding dresses on the side. That's what she did. Now, you can imagine why she didn't want two 10-year-old boys in that room. It's all white fabric and white thread. Why in the world would you want two 10-year-old boys who never bathe and never wash their hands to be in there? And so Miss Angie was in there. I don't know what she was doing, but Chris and I went in to ask her if we could go play outside. I'm talking to Miss Angie. Chris is over to the side. There's a little table with a bunch of spools of thread right here. Now, there was a big spool of thread, about this big around, and in the middle of that spool, you know, there's a hole that goes all the way through a spool so that it can sit on a machine, and it can turn round and round, and the thread can come off of it. Everybody following? And so Chris took his finger and stuck it down in the spool. And so I turned around, and he said, <laughs> that, that was, you know, you were 10-year-old boys. You don't do a lot of talking, okay? And I said, get, get that off. Let's go outside. And so he went to pull it off, and it didn't come off. And so... I noticed that he was struggling with it a little bit. And so Chris pulled and he 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 pulled and it wouldn't come off. And so finally I said, Chris, I've got this. And so I walked over to Chris and I put my foot up on Chris's chest and I grabbed either side of that spool and I pulled with everything my little 10-year-old body had. And it did not come off. And so Miss Angie said, I know how to get this off. It's very simple. We're going to take some lotion. We're going to pour it down around your finger, and this thing's just going to slide right off, right? 
So she begins to pour lotion down this thing. Now, you have to understand, we're 10 years old. We had not bathed in a week, okay? It is white thread. The dirt and the lotion is now all over it. This thread is done. It's ruined. There's no going back from this point, okay? And so she's twisting and turning, and this thing does not come off. And she said, well, maybe the lotion's not working. Let's put soap down there. So she took some soap, and she squirted it down there, and she twisted and twisted and twisted. And he kept saying, it's hurting, it's burning, it's hurting, it's burning. And we didn't know what that meant. We're just trying to get the dumb thing off of his finger. So we kept pulling, and we kept pulling, and we kept pulling. And finally, we called our moms. Now, the first reaction Miss Nancy had was, which spool of thread was it? We read her the number off of it, and she said, that, th- that spool of thread costs $500. It makes wedding dresses. It is ruined. I want you two boys to know you're going to work the rest of your lives for me. You're never getting out of this alive, okay? You owe me the rest of your life. So our moms come home. They get home. They've left work early. It's just right after lunch. They had three hours left of work, and they get there. And my, First thing my mom says, she said, we've got to put lotion down there. Miss Ann said, that ain't going to work. She said, well, let's try some soap. She said, that ain't going to work. And so now we knew what was going to have to happen. We were going to have to call my father. Now, you've got to understand, how many of you men, when you're at work, want to be called and told you need to come home because your son has made a dumb choice? None of us. Especially at 1.30 in the afternoon, and you work till 6.30. So we call my father. My father drives all the way there. And he tells Chris, you've got yourself in a mess, son. It is an absolute disaster. And he said, but I've got a Dremel tool. Anybody know what a Dremel tool is? Very small saw. And he busts this little saw out. He said, what we're going to do is we're going to slowly cut this thing away, and we're just going to peel it off of your finger. Chris is crying. I mean, he's snotting all over the place. He's bawling. You're going to cut my finger off. I mean, this is, this is an absolute, it's, you could write a movie about it. As he cuts all this thread off and pulls the thread off, he then cuts the cardboard of the spool. And as he peels this cardboard back and opens it up, and we begin to see that there's a metal cylinder that runs down the middle of that. And in that metal cylinder, there's two metal prongs that face like this so that when it sits on that rod, it will hold it in place. And what happened was when my really smart self decided to put my foot on his chest and pull it off, I had buried those two prongs into his knuckle. And by this point, it was so swollen, and it was bleeding everywhere, and it was black and blue, and he was crying like crazy, and my father said, wow, this is a mess. And so he got it off of there, and uh, of course, he had to ice it. We had to go check the doctor out, make sure it wasn't broken and all those things. I thought about that story and thought about how dumb of a decision Chris made to stick his finger down, and what was the appeal? Stop and think about it for a minute. What was the appeal, even for a 10-year-old to stick his finger down a spool of thread? How does that help you? You know, it's not even funny. Fast forward four years. Four years later, my family and I have moved to Memphis. My dad's in seminary. I'm probably 12, 13, 14 years old. And I had done something specifically my mother had told me not to. And I was in deep trouble, and I knew I was in deep trouble. And I knew when my father got home, it was going to be bad, and it was going to be really bad. And as I sat in my bedroom waiting for my father, the Lord spoke to me. Now, he didn't speak audibly. It wasn't one of those things where he came down in the clouds. I just felt the Holy Spirit impress upon me. And I kept saying, my father's going to be so angry. He's going to be so angry. And this is what I felt the Lord impress upon me. He said, Derek, you're going to continue to do these things over and over again unless you just release them to me. 
He said, you remember when you were 10 years old and nobody could get that spool of thread off of your friend Chris? He said, sin is very much the same way. He said, you can put all the oils and the lotions and the soaps. You can have friends try to help you out all in the world, but you can't get rid of sin. Only I can do that. Only the Heavenly Father can cut you loose from your sin. And if you're not willing to repent, who cares if you get in trouble? If you're not willing to repent of your sin, you're going to continue doing the same thing over and over, and you're going to continue be walking down this same path, and you're going to keep committing the same sins over and over. And this is what the Lord impressed upon me as about a 13, 14-year-old boy. He said, what happens is sin grabs hold of you, and it doesn't let go. And your, he- your earthly father can't get rid of it for you. And your earthly mother can't get rid of it for you. And your friends can't get rid of it for you. And self-help books can't get rid of it for you. I am the only one, your heavenly father, that can cut it away. As I thought about that story a lot, I thought about how far and how long Chris stayed in that. And I thought about David. And then I thought about me and my own life and my sin. And how I've stayed in it sometimes for a long time, instead of repenting and giving it over to the Lord. So I want us to discuss for a couple moments around the table. Here's the question I want you to discuss. How have you seen sin grab a hold of people for a long time? I'll give you an example. I met a, young, I met a guy when I was probably 19 or 20 years old who said he had a major addiction to alcohol. He really struggled with alcohol. The man went to church on Sundays but drank himself to a stupor all week long. About 15 years passed, and I bumped into this man. We used to go to church together. I bumped into him at a restaurant. He was under the influence. And I said, hey, so-and-so. I said, I haven't seen you in a long time. And he said, nope, but you can tell I'm the same person, can't you? I said, may I ask you a question? He said, yes. I said, when I was 19 years old, we sat in a Bible study together at that little church, and you said you repented of that sin, and yet you've continued on in the exact same thing. Why is that? And this is what he said. He said, you know, I really don't know. But he said, I do know this. If I could go back and change it, I would have never taken the first drink in college. And I thought to myself, sin has kept him for a really long time. So I want you to discuss it around the table. We'll come back together in a minute. All right, guys, Dr. Rogers said, thirdly, sin will make you pay more than you want to pay. I found it interesting that at the end of this passage, it says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. I didn't put this verse on the screen, but if you fast forward to chapter 12, verse 13 says, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. I thought about that. And I remember Dr. Rogers talking about oftentimes it will financially cost you a lot. Sin can financially cost you a lot. I read a stat the other day on how much revenue pornography and the sex industry is is making, and it is unbelievable. I read a stat on what gambling 
generates across the country. I ran another stat on alcohol and all of these things that a lot of times will grab hold of men and just doesn't want to let go. And the numbers are astronomical as to what people are spending on these things. Now, when I was a boy, my grandmother and my grandfather, both my dad's parents, both smoked cigarettes. And, and listen, if you smoke, I'm not here to, 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 to badmouth you, but, but, but my parents were like, listen, we're not going to smoke in our house. And so I told my dad one night, I said, Dad, I, I, I heard at school that somebody got cancer from smoking. Somebody's grandparents said, and my dad said, well, sometimes smoking can cause that. And I said, well, I don't want me, mom, and people to get cancer. We need to pray that God will make them quit smoking. And so we began praying as a family. Each night, we would kneel down at my sister's bed, and we would pray. And we'd pray for a few different things, but one of the things we'd pray for is that my, my mom and people all quit smoking. Well, about three months passed, we got a phone call from my grandmother who let us know that she had just been diagnosed with esophagus cancer, that they were going to be removing her voice box. And so she went through all of that, and through the course of over the next few years, it was, it was, it, she was an amazing woman. She, she loved the Lord. She ended up getting breast cancer, and she got brain cancer, and all these different types of cancer. She, one, one year, she was a national spokeswoman for breast cancer awareness. I mean, God did some amazing things with her through that 10-year journey of cancer. When she passed away, I remember being at my grandparents' house, and I asked my grandfather, I said, will you quit smoking now? And this is what he said, and I thought it was very, really fascinating. He said, you know, I'm really going to give it a shot. He said, I tried when she was really sick with cancer, he said, but the stress was so heavy on me. He said, that was a way for me to cope with the stress. I could go away, smoke, and come back in the house. And he said, but you know what I started doing? I said, what? He said, I started smoking. Now, this will blow you away. He started smoking when he was nine years old. Okay, and my grandfather was born five minutes after they bombed Pearl Harbor. So I, I, so, so I, so I love to hear him tell stories that when he was in the Navy, there we go, shout out to the Navy, that's right. Um, I love to hear him tell those stories, but he told me he started smoking. They worked on a farm in Louisiana. They grew up on a farm, and he said, you know, my, my, my dad smoked, his, all of his brothers smoked. He said, it's just what everybody did, and he said, so I started smoking. I was nine years old. He said, by the time I was 15, I was smoking a pack a day, and he said, I went back and did the math of how much money I've spent on cigarettes in the last 70 years. And he said, it is unbelievable. And he said, I never would have imagined that a bad habit like that would have cost me so much. And I thought about that many times, and I think about this in this situation. Dr. Rogers said, sin will make you pay more than you ever wanted to pay. I want to ask you a question. What does your sin cost you in your life? Has there been a time where you've said something to somebody that you shouldn't have and lost a friendship over it? Has there been a time where you maybe said something to your spouse or another family member and it caused a deep hurt that potentially never healed? Has there ever been a time in your life where you made a poor business decision and maybe did something with very low integrity and it came back to bite you. Has there ever been a time where you've messed around with some things you shouldn't have messed around with and it's come back to bite you? You say, man, Derek, this is kind of heavy, but there's good news. Because Jesus went to the cross and he paid for all of our sin in this room. You think about it. Our sin would overflow out of this room if it was sitting here. Even if we just wrote it on paper, it would fill this room up. And yet he paid for all of it.
And we could talk about bashing each other, and we can talk about getting in each other's face, and we can talk about confronting, and we can talk about all those things, but we serve a very gracious, loving, caring, kind, compassionate God who when Jesus was on the earth and he was up on that hill and he looked down at the 5,000 men and their wives and children, the Bible says he looked upon them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But aren't you thankful that Psalm 23 was written by David that says, what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He has made a way. And what happens is oftentimes with men, because I've been to Promise Keepers. Anybody been to Promise Keepers in here? I remember them. I was in the Kansas City uh, football stadium that was packed out. Tony Evans was preaching, and we were singing, holy, 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 and grown men were crying all over the place. And there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men. I've seen it. I've watched it with my eyes. But oftentimes men get beat up. And they end up getting discouraged and depressed over things that they've done in their past. And I want you to know that, yes, you were tempted in your past, and yes, you have sinned in your past, but that's exactly where the devil wants to keep you, walking in defeat. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And he has created a pathway for you and I that we don't ever have to experience the consequences like we should. Now, listen, there are still consequences to sin. For instance, when my son made the decision to do that on his tests, he is not any less my son. As a matter of fact, my love for him has grown through watching him work very, very, very hard over the last month to make all of that right and to relearn all of the things that he had been skimming by and cheating through. And I have grown to love him and become more proud of him, of watching him walk through that. And if he was standing right here today, I would tell him how proud I am for taking ownership of what he did and being a man and walking through it. But there are consequences. He lost out on a lot of things. There are consequences to our sin. But the Bible tells us that he will forgive all of our sins completely forgiven, that you and I never have to experience a separation from God forever and ever because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is what I want us to do tonight. I know it's going to be a little different. When I look at this, these three things, sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to say. Sin will make you pay more than you want to pay. I want us to do something together for just a moment It's going to be a little different. It's not going to be discussion around the table. It's going to be you just alone with the Lord. Now, I don't know how often you do this. I need to do this more than I do. But I try to about once a month take about 30 minutes and go somewhere. Oftentimes for me, it's on campus here at Bellevue, and it's back behind the big lake back there. Now, if you don't know, there's a couple kind of like lounge chairs back there. You can go back there and sit. Here's what I'd encourage you to do on your lunch break. Once a month, once a quarter, once a year, I'd encourage you to go back there, find one of those chairs, take your Bible, and just sit there with the Lord. Okay? Just, just sit there with the Lord. I did this two weeks ago. It was actually two days before Tim passed away. I just sat there with the Lord. I said, Lord, first of all, I want to be clean before you. And I want you to show me any sin in my life that I've not been recognizing. So what I want us to do right now is I want, whether you want to go off 
onto the bleacher by yourself, whether you want to just close your eyes right there, whether you want to pull your chair back away from all the other men, I want you just to get alone with the Lord for a moment. And this may take us a few minutes. And so, Larry, I am going to ask you to play just a little bit of music with no words here, just because just we're just going to have a little bit of time with the Lord. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to ask the Lord to bring to your mind any unconfessed sin. Now, I'm, this is, this, don't, oftentimes, you hear people say, they get to the end of the day, they say, Lord, forgive me for any sin I committed today. That don't work. Now, thankfully, God still forgives. But can you imagine if you did that with your wife? Can you imagine if just once a month you said, baby, I'm sorry for anything I did this last month. Everything good? Okay, great. It's not going to work well, gentlemen. You've got to talk through it. You've got to work through it. She needs to know that you know what you did was wrong. And so I want you just to take a few minutes with the Lord. I just want you to say, Lord, I need you to bring to mind any unconfessed sin in my life. I'm going to sit right here and I'm going to do the exact same thing. I just want you to get alone with the Lord. Ask him to reveal that to you. I want you to recognize that, and, and not out loud, but just to the Lord. I just want you to call that out. Whatever sin that is, we're going to take about a minute, spend it alone with the Lord, and then I'll talk in just a second. So just take some time with the Lord. Just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. There's not very many times in our life where we get really quiet with the Lord. So now I want you to do the second thing that I like to try to do just in my own life. This first thing I say, Lord, I just want to recognize that sin. Will you just reveal that sin to me? So the second thing we want you to do is just take a moment just to repent of that sin. Just to say, Lord, I'm sorry. And to call it out for what it is. If you've lied, Lord, I'm sorry for lying. If you've cheated, Lord, I'm sorry for cheating. If you've committed adultery, Lord, I'm sorry for committing adultery. If you've lusted, Lord, I'm sorry for lusting. Uh, If you've been dealing with bitterness and hatred, Lord, I'm sorry for this bitterness and hatred. But you repent of it and say, Lord, I do not want that anymore. I'm asking you to forgive me of that today and take that away from me. So I want you to take just another minute. I just want you to repent of that right there where you are. Whatever the Lord's revealed to you, I want you to repent of it. Take about a minute, and then we got one more step we're going to do together. You know, that's the hard part, and it's the part that hurts. It's the part where the Lord is doing some refining. He's revealing things to us in our lives. And I always know when I take, go to take that time with the Lord that it's, it's sometimes going to be painful. Sometimes he's going to bring to recollection things in my life that I may have turned a blind eye to or I may have not wanted to see or I may have just enjoyed what that was and wanted to continue on in it. But once he reveals it and we repent of it, we always rejoice because of what he's done. So I want you to just take a minute because if you sat there and the Lord revealed something to you and you repented of that sin... I want you to rejoice that the Lord has forgiven you because he promises if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want you just to take a minute and say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me enough to die on the cross for me and thank you that you love me enough to forgive me for my sin when I confess it and repent to you. So I want you to take about a minute and just rejoice in what God has done. Now, guys, I just want to remind you of what it says in 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak out about it as I should. Men, you have spent a few moments asking the Lord to reveal sin to you. You have repented of whatever he has brought into your mind. You have rejoiced because he has delivered you, but I want you to know that the devil is going to come after you even harder now than he ever has before, and we have got to strap on our armor We have got to wake up. We have got to spend time with Jesus, and we have got to prepare for battle. We are men, and we need to be like Joab that was out on the battlefield prepared to fight instead of David in isolation by himself. I want one man at your table, or two men, however you feel led, to turn and just pray over the men at your table for protection, for wisdom, and for us to be strong in the faith to stand against the wiles of the devil. Take a few moments to pray over your, around your table. When you're done praying, you're dismissed.